Hey, it's Craig Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We'll wrap the week for March the 4th. We're going to talk about the Batman movie. Oh, my gosh. We have to talk about Ukraine. It's terrible. It is awful. Um, it's affecting all of us. Uh, when we talk about mental health, this thing is hitting us very, very hard. And we'll talk about uh, some important issues as well on the political front on this side of the border and south of the border in our Chatterbox segment with Amira El-Gawabi and Jamie Ellerton. They've been great, great pairing, good chemistry together. The three of us like our chats. Uh, so that's on there as well. And much, much more. Thanks very much for checking out Toronto Today. It begins now. Dr. Kieran Moore, right? Uh, the uh, the guy, the chief medical officer of health for Ontario was on yesterday. And I noticed on my uh, Twitter timeline, like I wasn't watching it live, but I noticed like, ooh, a lot fewer people are sort of hanging on his every word. We used to do that a fair bit. There's, there's those of us that have to, right? Like I understand it for the news cycle, but I'm thinking... No, I'm not hearing. Sometimes you'd hear from people. You just get a text and it'd be like, are you watching this right now? In exclamation marks, right? And then question marks before the exclamation marks. And some of the words would be capitalized. And you're like, oh my God, capital letters. Some words are entirely capitalized. Someone thinks this is important. And you used to get those over the course of time when uh, I think uh, the premier um, announced like that he wanted to have like a grad for everybody last spring. I think that was uh, that was one of those times where it's like, are you seeing that? And so I got I get none of that anymore. It's it's not look, this is not a knock. We can disagree and talk about it and debate and reason. But to me, Kieran Moore is like that band that had a lot of hits, uh, it, but they haven't done anything recently. And they're starting to play smaller venues. <laughs> okay, They are. They're sli- it's a sliding scale of interest. OK, you've only got the three songs. The band Europe can only play the final countdown and maybe carry to so many people after 1987. Can they open for Bon Jovi at the X in 87? Yes, because the songs are on the chart then. That's what I'm noticing with a lot of these public health meetings. Live, in concert. Now, listen, again, live in concert, Dr. Teresa Tam doesn't exactly, I know, that doesn't exactly light your toes on fire. I get it. But a lot fewer people were like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, I got my vaccines, I know where to wear a mask, uh, I want you to move this ball down the football field, get into the red zone, punch it in the end zone, touchdown, that's it. That's what they want. That's what they want. And you know this, too, 70 Five to 77% of people aren't even on Twitter. They're not on there. And I feel like the ones that are, who are loud and aggressive, uh, who are sort of mask uh, mask nation, like for everybody in perpetuity, with no off-ramp until what? Everybody gets vaccinated? What? Until we're at COVID zero? What? Other what's? Um, they're, they're like, they're digging in. They've dug in their heels a little bit. We're all being civil, but they've dug right in. They're into the ground. I thought about that yesterday with Dr. Moore. Um, but that said, we need to talk about some of what Dr. Moore said yesterday because we're a radio show. And so we will, um, in a little bit. Um, the Russia stuff's really, really heavy. If you missed it, and Dave Bradley just uh, summarized it brilliantly, as he always does. But this nuclear scenario in uh, Ukraine caught a lot of people just say the word nuclear and it's a problem right it's a massive problem um last weekend when uh vladimir putin had his sort of nuclear employees i don't know if you put that can i see your business card um show me your business card right now does it say uh, nuclear employee for the country of russia okay then i know it's you 
But last weekend on when, on Sunday, when it was thought, well, they're on high alert, then you're on high alert. I'm, if, if those people are on high alert, so are you and I, because nobody likes to even see the word nuclear in a sentence. Okay. But when uh, Putin's forces yesterday seized this nuclear plant after shelling it with gunfire, um, that's a problem. And uh, you, uh, this was a white flame. You can see the fire. The video of the fire is all over most of the websites. I'm looking at one on the Guardian website in the UK right now, which uh, I saw on television on CNN around uh, 5, 6 p.m. our time because they're seven hours ahead last night. And a fire breaking out at the site of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine. Now, um, everything you need to know about it suggests uh, that it's been it was seized by Russian military forces. A fire broke out. It burned for four hours. That's fantastic. And uh, but but Russian troops also stopped emergency teams from coming to the blaze. You can imagine you've got people that are still working in Ukraine in emergency services. And Russian troops are like, we we got this, but they don't have it. That's the problem. Um, Ukrainian emergency services confirmed the fire got extinguished at 6.20 a.m. local time, which if you double back the clocks, about 11.20 Eastern time for us. But the Russian military forces have this particular power plant. Um, so it's not going to blow up. I saw there was a lot. There were a few tweets. This will be like Chernobyl. This will be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. A lot of misinformation. Um, weirdly, weirdly, a lot of the uh, a couple doomsday doctors in the States, that Dr. Ding uh, Dingus, he was uh, all over this as well, suggesting there's going to be, oh, this will be terrible. And this is uh, this is going to happen. And again, um, we have to find help for that human being. Um, my gosh, I think I followed that guy for about three weeks in the summer of 2020. And I'm like, this guy doesn't doesn't seem all there. doesn't seem rational. Um, but there's more reassurance surrounding these power plant reactors. Where is there no reassurance? The whole thing. The whole thing. Um, this is a absolute blitzkrieg across Ukraine. Russia yesterday took its first major city in Kherson, which is a key port city in the south of the country. My wife put it brilliantly when we were watching this on Wednesday night, and she noted that they, the American networks actually do a really good job of treating this like a sporting event. And I don't mean that for being trivial. It's incredibly serious and terrible. And it's you can make the case it's a you know it's a military genocide being carried out right now on uh, generally defenseless or at least uh, citizens lacking firepower. You can make those cases. But she did make the point that for these generals that they bring in, they explain the strategy almost like you're talking about like a football game. And it's actually it, it's more helpful for me to understand and many to understand. And, and they did that. They did that during the uh, Gulf War in 1992. That's that's sort of when that technology and the, the first real big cable TV war came into play where you could be just turn it on and watch it and keep up with it. There's no other story, as you've noticed, happening on CNN right now. There is not. Um, but Ukraine has succeeded. Remember, I think we were a little positive coming in on Monday morning thinking they've repelled the invaders. They've pushed them back. They've told them, showed them that it's not going to be as easy as may, maybe Vladimir Putin thought. And we, we didn't see two things coming. One, the incredible resolve and defense of, of what Ukrainians were going to do 
and maybe we just underestimate them and and human character in general. I think I was talking with friends last night uh, as we were out, and we all said we'd all pick up arms. We'd all would defend our households. We'd all defend our neighborhoods um, to the extent that Ukraine is. And they, it's this didn't come as a shock to them. This isn't like uh, the movie Red Dawn, where all of a sudden there's paratroopers coming out of the sky, and it's up to like you know Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen and C. Thomas Howell to defend us. Good flick, by the way. Great flick with your thirteen. But um, that's not what this is. Ukraine's been ready for this for probably a half decade. But the gamble for Putin was doing a very swift dismantling here. And he can't he can't possibly walk that back and say mission accomplished. That's not going to happen. So what does he do? Well, he's digging in deeper and he's blasting harder. And that's part of what's hard to watch right now. Gary Kasparov, of course, the former uh, Grandmaster chess champion, has been an avid critic of Putin. And he said this in a Reuters interview yesterday. It's a genocide live. It's the first time in, in our history, in human history, we're watching war crimes on the industrial scale committed by Putin's criminal regime. It's the first stage of the World War III, and it's not war of our choosing. Heavy words. World War III. We're using that phrase more than I think we were a week and a half ago when we were kind of rolling our eyes about it, saying, is this the start of World War III? Well, we've asked that question before. But if you're still asking it nine days later and you're more convinced nine days later that it is than it isn't, then what are you to think? Okay, Ukraine is vastly outnumbered. They're vastly they're not outmanned, but they're certainly uh, they don't have the arsenal. They don't have the Russian military war machine that has done this before and gone into Georgia and bombed Syria and annexed Crimea in 2014. They don't have it. Many of these uh, Russians had fathers probably in the Soviet army that attempted to commandeer Afghanistan for years in the late 70s. It led to those Olympic boycotts, right, in 1980 by us and in 1984 by the Soviet bloc countries, almost as a as a flip you back uh, when the Olympics were in Los Angeles in the summer of 1984. I don't remember 80 well, but I remember the 84 one really well because we went uh, 80. I don't because we didn't. And uh, and I was a lot a lot more of a little kid. But um, there's a lot of people in Putin's circle thinking that uh, th- they were just going to be invited back home. That Ukrainians are almost exiled Russians or uh, Russians that are just confused about their heritage. They're not. They're Ukra- Ukra- the Ukrainians think they're Ukrainian. That's been demonstrably, demonstrably proved over the last seven, eight days. Now, here's the problem, and Kasparov lays this out. It got to this point because of a lot of indifference. We did shrug our shoulders. I will say it again. There's 16 years of George W. Bush and Barack Obama combined where Russia was coddled. Russia was, we played footsies with them. We were okay with it. We didn't want to be rude to them. We didn't want to judge them prematurely or judge Putin prematurely about what they wanted. And it ended up costing us. Here's more from Gary Kasparov yesterday. This is on Sky News. Uh, We are in this terrible situation. It's tragic. And we're paying with blood, mainly Ukrainian blood, uh, for the mistakes that have been made for unwillingness of world powers to not just to hear my warnings, but to see the signs of Putin's uh, ongoing aggression. Uh, Putin first invaded Ukraine eight years ago, and the response was weak. And uh, um, after this weak response, almost uh, non-response, for annexation of Crimea and also uh, his continuation of of war crimes in Syria, uh, 
carpet bombing Aleppo and other uh, uh, rebel strongholds. I think Putin eventually decided that uh, he could do whatever, and Ukraine was always on his uh, um, target list. Yeah, it always has been. Um, Gary Kasparov's book came out in 2015. It's called Winter is Coming. Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped. Now, that's a book uh, that sold, and I haven't read it yet. I, I'm seeing the, uh, the hardcover right or the uh, Kindle edition right now at $14.99. I'm going to spend that money this weekend. And I got time and I'm going to watch some soccer and I'm going to read that book. I'm not and I'll clean the garage. Maybe I'm not doing much else, but I'm going to devour that book this weekend. Um, But when you when I read you that subtitle, why Vladimir Putin and the enemies of the free world must be stopped. That was a strong recommendation. And the world didn't listen. The world didn't listen to that particular sentiment. Now, there's a couple different ways this can go. And everybody's talked about this. Is this the lead to something else is this just the first inning of a nine inning game for russia to go at the rest of the world and this area if it's a true let's get the band back together as in the band being the soviet union the big russian bear of the 70s and 80s we have to stop him now we have to stop him now and bring him to his knees and we're trying economically. I made the point yesterday about the Russian economy. Now, did some people uh, misunderstand it? Of course. It's Twitter. People misunderstand things. But I pointed out how companies are pulling out of, uh, you know, car companies, Ikea, tens of thousands of Ikea employees don't have a job to go to today or tomorrow or whenever Ikea is fully out. Um, That's by design. I feel bad for those people. Hey, Greg, what's happening in Ukraine is worse. Yes. Who doesn't think that? Thanks for stating the obvious. But at the same time, if you're going to try and push the Russian people to rise up, I don't know whether they're able to rise up. I don't know whether they'll they won't get crushed or not. Eventually, only so many dissidents can be arrested. Only so many old ladies with signs can be dragged away. And then there's Zelensky. Let me get to him for another 30 seconds before we break here. He hasn't fled yet and he's not dead yet, to the best of our knowledge. Um, and Russia can't, won't be able to hold on to Kiev if they end up capturing it. Okay. They're trying to knock out power. That's one thing that's new this morning. Hit people with their electricity, their heating, their water, their internet, knock it out, take the lines down. Don't let people have any contact, but that's desperate measures call for desperate tactics. And that's a dra- there's going to be a drastic escalation of force from the Russian army. And if we're, if you're watching this story, you're going to have to have the stomach uh, to watch it to some extent. Um, can Moscow, can the Kremlin, can they push that level of violence uh, forward? Can uh, it be supported by everyone internally? I don't know, but it may not even matter if Putin doesn't have any checks and balances with what he's going to do. And there's a great question. I keep asking it to myself. I mumble it out loud around the house. Are you trying to integrate Ukraine into something bigger? Or are you just trying to massacre everyone in sight and plant a flag in their capital and say, we won the war? I don't know the answer. And maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle. But it's a frightening time. And we're all watching it uh, feeling really, really queasy. Um, from, From a week that I guess had some optimism to it. I don't know what to be optimistic about. Yeah, the Ukrainian people have resolve and strength, and, and, but it's, it's going to take an endless amount. It's going to take years. I said to somebody last night, this will take 18 months, 20 months. That's how long. That's the minimum. The minimum this war will be is a year and a half. You'll be talking about this, maybe not with the same veracity, 12, excuse me, 18 to 20 months from now, towards the end of 2023, at minimum.
This is not a quick fix for either side. Diana Kuzmakov is joining us uh, right now. It's great to have you on. I know we chatted yesterday. Thanks very much for making the time for our audience. Hey, thanks for having me, Greg. What has what has this been as someone of, of Russian heritage? What has this been like? It's uh, there must be so much conflict and, and mixed emotion and, and just it, it, it can't be very uh, easy for any of us. And, and watching your own your own people struggle to protest and watching as well the Russian government do what they've been doing. Yeah, so, I mean, I think like all Canadians, um, myself and my family and all the Russian people that I know are heartbroken about the war and horrified by the situation in Ukraine and by Putin's aggression towards the Ukrainian people. Um, it's, you know, really unimaginable. And um, yeah, so I think I think that's kind of the prevailing feeling, uh, both with myself and with uh, my family. Uh, I mean, having said that... Um, and again, it's not to compare the situation of Russians to, you know, what people here who have family in Ukraine must be feeling. Um, but it's certainly been difficult to kind of see the escalation over the last week in terms of, well, both rhetoric and action um, mm-hmm. targeting anything really Russian. Um, and although I, I understand and fully support economic sanctions and political, um, you know, sanctions, uh, I, I am sort of a little bit getting concerned um, about just kind of it almost feels like this frenzied, um, in some ways, theater for everybody to try to show how much they hate anything to do with Russia. I mean, yesterday, people would send me stuff because they know I'm of Russian heritage. Yesterday, I think it was like some international cat Olympics banned Russian That's cats. That's right. We mentioned that. Did you see? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then there's it. like, yeah. And then uh, like FIFA has taken all Russian teams off their video games. Mm-hmm. I think there was a story about the University of Milan banning Dostoevsky. Like it's 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 really madness. And really, one has to ask, like, is this really helping Ukraine? Because my my concern is with the Ukrainian people, the, um, you know, the refugees. And I think we should be doing everything we can to help people who are fleeing this terrible war. But um, just kind of this frenzied, it almost feels in some ways a bit of virtue signaling. And it's almost got a bit of a mob mentality feel. Um, Mm. And I have to say, although I personally haven't felt unsafe, I know sort of with my elderly my elderly parents and and their friends, there is, and they they're in Toronto, but there is, um, you know, discussion that they're they're nervous, they're they're feeling quite unwelcome, they're feeling even unsafe. I mean, they're uh, I'd say a little more visibly Russian. They all have accents, they all speak Russian, um, and some of them are are afraid to to do that in public. So yeah, um, it's it's concerning for sure. Diana Kuzmakov, our guest on uh, Toronto today on six forty Toronto. Um, when did your family first come to Russia? Tell us about that um, evolution and that journey to becoming Canadians. Yeah, so so my family came in 1978. Um, I was born in the former USSR, mm-hmm. um, and we came here. We actually came here as political refugees, and Canada took us. And I've grown up here, and I feel very Canadian. Um, but I still have family um, over there, and you know, I'm connected to my heritage, to Russian culture. Um, I think it's a wonderful culture. And a lot of which, you know, the things that we, um, the best of Russian culture, I would say, all kind of came uh, in opposition to tyranny. I mean, I think the Russian people have always really been cursed with these leaders who are despots and um, autocrats. And um, and like I said, even in my own family situation, we were fleeing as political refugees. So, um, you know, I think that's really important to remember that Russians are not 
their leaders um, that uh, you know, we many Russians to I mean, even now in Russia are trying to oppose. Um, there is I just read there's like a jail term that the Russian parliament just put on anybody who yeah. spreads what they call fake news. Like it's a pretty scary place even now. I mean, it's funny. My dad even said to me that he thinks Russia now is scarier than 40 years ago when we left. So I think it's really important to remember that and to remember that, um, that yeah, the Russian people are not their leaders. Well, it has to be. There was such. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there was such pushback uh, by the time of the late 80s. And and Mikhail, you know, you're young, but Mikhail Gorbachev coming to prominence politically where you're like, even in North America, we're like, this feels different. This feels like there's there's obviously um, some defrosting of the Cold War. And then eventually Berlin Wall comes down. Soviet Union breaks up. And um, I was working in Detroit in sports. So some of these you're well familiar with the Russian five. So the, the players like Igor Larionov and Sergei Fedorov, I'd get to talk to these players about uh, Russia in retrospect and how how desperately, you know, Fedorov defected and Larionov waited and, and did it via legal means. But it took him forever to do it because they wouldn't let him go. So it's it's rather remarkable. And I don't think anybody I don't think anybody's being fair if they're judging someone of Russian. Look, we wouldn't have done this post 9-11. And we uh, I don't think even we should do this with Americans when they do something that we don't like if it's invading Iraq or if it's this or it's that. There's there's a long history of a lot of company, a lot of uh, countries committing uh, imperial acts of aggression. I would say this is unique. I would say this is unique for modern times, but we can't make all these false equivalencies and, and blame everybody of of one country's heritage. We didn't do that with a lot of other things that have happened in the last 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I do think there's a history of kind of mob uh, reactions, uh, even in Canada. Um, you know, everybody knows what happened to the Japanese after World War II. Right. And, um, and even in 9-11, maybe not as much in Canada, but there definitely was kind of this mob uh, frenzied uh, attack and hatred. And, and so I think we all need to really pause and think about like what kind of place Canada uh, is or is supposed to be. And I, I'm, I'm very aware like this all comes at the heel end of two years of COVID, right? Like, I think people's emotions are raw. I think there's kind of a heightened uh, reactivity in the population. And I do wonder how much of that is affecting, like, this reaction to uh, what's going on in Russia, particularly in terms of that kind of anger and need to blame and attack. Um, But really, you know, I, I... Again, I, I don't think that the Russian people are uh, are their leaders. And I, I think a lot of, I mean, everybody that I know is against the war. We don't want the war. We feel horrible for what's happening. And our hearts are really with, uh, you know, the people of Ukraine and everything that they're going through. Are there, are there um, not necessarily in your family, but have you heard of family members who whose views range. We, we, again, we could have a similar conversation in, in the United States. Obviously, there's people of of Israeli heritage, Palestinian heritage, and they differ. And, the, yeah. and, and, and families yeah. get torn apart by, especially yeah. once military uh, actions are involved. The, you, we can all have political disputes. You can marry somebody of, of a different political origin. But when the when, it, when it's military action, especially when it's this aggressive and this uh, this harmful and this outrageous, I'm sure it, it like you said, it heightens emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So I, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to uh, argue with family members uh, or people that I know from uh, Russia. 
about the situation too much because the opinions do vary. Again, not so much like I think everybody I know is against the war, mm-hmm. but in terms of, uh, you know, like, was there a security threat to Russia? And, you know, what was going on in the Ukraine? I think there is like, you know, varying degrees of, um, and I wouldn't call it all propaganda because I think some of it's actually shown up in our media as well, but the degree to which like, uh, you know, there's a Nazi threat in the Ukraine, which is kind of what Putin uses, right, to justify liberating the Ukrainian people. So I think, um, at least in my family, people believe different things about kind of the right of Russia to uh, for security, um, you know, the issues around like Nazi presence, um, definitely debate about that, whether NATO should be, you know, doing, last night I was just arguing with my dad about the NATO, should there be a no-fly zone? Yeah. So I think there's definitely, and and again, I think we've kind of gone through two years of yelling at each other about COVID and vaccines. So I feel like the the climate is really one of emotionality and division. Um, and I think we, we all just really need to be careful about where this is all uh, going. Are you hopeful um, that, it, that it calms down to some extent, Diana, in the next several days, several weeks? We, we don't know where this is going. I feel this is a long-term war. I said it uh, earlier in the show. I, yeah. I think this is something that's going to rage for, like the Balkans, for maybe for at least 18 months, maybe a couple years at minimum. I do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I fluctuate. I think, you know, depending what I'm reading, what source I'm reading and who I'm talking to. Um, but I certainly agree with you. I think it has the potential to rage on and depending mm. um, sort of where things go, I think, uh, you know, on the other hand, I mean, I, I, I guess there was some, someone had sent me a, a clip that there was some progress made yesterday in terms of these uh, negotiations uh, in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine in terms of creating this corridor, at least for civilians to get out. So I'm hoping, um, I'm hopeful, but I'm also a little bit pessimistic given, you know, well, and, you know, to be honest, like I, I mean, Russian people are, they're uh, not just the people, I mean, sort of Russian mentality, I would say is a little bit stubborn. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're, you know, these are the people that like, lost 25 million uh, Russians fighting Hitler. Like these are stubborn uh, people who do not back down very easily. And so I I know that about um, the Afghan, the Afghan, war, the Afghan war was a great example of that. Like they, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't give all yeah. throughout the eighties. Right. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, I heard somebody, a uh, uh, professor talking the other day saying like the, the mentality of, and it's kind of been the Russian empire for mm-hmm. a thousand years is, is really one of extremes. Uh, and there's sort of a, a win or die people. Like that's the mentality we're dealing with. So I, I, I'm a mm-hmm. little bit, you know, <laughs> I don't know, pessimistic, um, but I, I have to remain optimistic. And I think, um, you know, we all need a little bit of uh, of, of prayer, I think, and, and hope for the future as well. You have to be that way. Uh, Diana Kuzmakoff, uh, thank you very much for making the time. Uh, thanks for, uh, I, I really appreciate you reaching out to me and saying, I'm happy to come on and talk about, because this is a conflict for everybody. It's, it's not just a yeah. conflict for one nation. There's no doubt about it. Thanks for the opportunity, Greg. I've never seen a movie on, I've seen two movies on back-to-back nights in my life. Rocky Four, but I didn't know better. It's still good. Went on back-to-back nights when I was like 13 and went to Batman when I was 17, two nights in a row. We got tickets for a premiere and then we went again opening night um, because we loved it so much. And I've never been at a movie where the opening credits have been applauded. Michael Keaton got applause. Jack Nicholson got a huge round of applause. And um, I don't think I was the only one clapping for Prince. Um, but we were clapping for Prince uh, when his name came up 
on the uh, on the screen. Uh, our next guest reviewed the new Batman movie. He is William Malay, uh, Malay and uh, joins us, uh, writes for Esquire, and he's uh, actually in the Middle East, but a writer, film critic, and TV and radio broadcaster. William, it is great to have you on. I'm, I'm happy to talk Batman with anybody, but I saw your review, and you really like this movie. You called it the best Batman movie. Tell me why. I mean, okay, so first of all, I think this is the best Batman movie, specifically because it's the best Batman movie. It's the only Batman movie, including, you know, you just gave it away yourself. You said it was a round of applause for Michael Keaton. It was a huge round of applause for Jack Nicholson. Because <laughs> they were about, it was Nicholson's about the villain, movie. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's his movie. This is Batman's movie. And it feels like the truest love letter to the character we've gotten. It's an ode to the guy that we've known since 1939, since Bob Kane and Bill Finger put him together, all the way to, you know, really putting him in the present day and creating a 2022 version that still sustains. I think it really is a perfect encapsulation of everything that I love about the character. I think about 1989 a lot because, every listen, you know, when, when we were teenagers, everything's just the coolest, right? Like, you know, what, music, movies, girlfriends, your first car. You remember all that stuff. And, uh, and I think about that. But I also think it was really the start of the superhero movie. They tried it with Christopher Reeve and, and Superman, had some success there. But studios, big studios seemed afraid to make movies like the one you you reviewed, the new The Batman, but also Batman in 1989. And since then, obviously, people have seen the formula. Marvel certainly has and uh, and made it work almost to the point where there's criticism. There's too many. Talk about that a little bit, how it, it just felt like for years when I was a little kid, these movies really didn't exist through the 70s and a lot of the 80s. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with just the understanding of comic books and culture. You know, I think that people always had to put comic book movies in a box of feeling like a comic book. And, you know, Tim Burton kind of threaded that string better than anyone else. But once we got to Joel Schumacher, they were just off the wall. This idea of this, you know, bright and colorful and campy comic book concept. And it feels like it took so long to get to a point where we could just do a film that takes Batman seriously. While also, you know, still having humor, still being able to, to get there, it feels like we needed to go through all the growing pains. We needed to go ultra, ultra serious before we could go back to something that actually felt like the comic books themselves. Um, so it just feels like the, the growth of culture that kind of ended up burrowing back to itself. William Mullally, our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. So I'd ask, does this movie sort of sandwich in between? Because it's a reintroduction, obviously, of the character. Does it sandwich in between how kind of campy the Michael Keaton 1989 film was, and then Batman Begins, which eh, didn't have a lot of laughs to it um, with uh, with Christian Bale in 2005. Does it kind of fall in the middle? Are there humorous moments in the new Batman movie? Yeah, there are. And honestly, it's not just that there's humorous moments. There's humorous moments that I actually laugh out loud. And there's other moments when I'm actually terrified. You know, I think in the near opening shot, not to give anything away, mm -hmm. he really sets the tone for how able Matt Reeves is as a director to just jump from tone to tone and make them all work and never feel like it's, you know, lampshaded, like it's making fun of it to acknowledge the ridiculousness of it. Rather, it's exploring the ridiculous of it. You know, why is this guy, why does he feel his truest face can only come out when he's wearing a bat mask on his head and taking those, that, that answer seriously? So there was hesitancy, I think, on Pattinson to play the role. Um, the the obviously Bale carried it through brilliantly through three films. Michael Keaton had to be like coerced into doing the second film and was absolutely out on those on those third and fourth movies. Um, and the franchise really stalled, obviously, after the disastrous George Clooney movie. Um, is this 
does Pattinson Pattinson takes this role on right knowing that he was very defined as one character from Twilight and this really breaks him out a little bit does this is the first time a lot of people will have seen him on the screen since Twilight yeah that's the thing but he's been putting in the work in between you know it's not like he's just been <laughs> you know in yeah. hibernation like in, in, in like Dracula off somewhere in a coffin, he has been working with guys like David Cronenberg, like the Safdie brothers. And it was actually the movie Good Time that inspired Matt Reeves um, when I spoke to him, that that was the movie that he saw and said, okay, this guy has the goods. This guy can do mm-hmm. something nuanced and human while also still kind of being stoic, not doing too much while also doing everything that it needs. And so I think Pattinson taking on the Batman is a different understanding of the character. I think that you will see a lot more emotion than you're expecting from this guy. People have kind of dismissed it as, emo batman but it's really it's the subtle things you know when when someone pops a trunk and there's a dead body in it you see it hit his face he doesn't just stare at it; he feels it and i think pattinson as an actor has come so far to be able to pull that off and not make it seem like oh this guy's this guy's a joke this guy's a wimp you see him overcome his own fears and that's part of what makes him a hero you must find it funny too because cr- there was criticism of him there was criticism of ben affleck pre-internet considerable criticism of of michael keaton but you know i just finished watching the the what he just won the screen actors guild award for dope sick i wish he'd won the oscar for birdman he's a personal favorite of mine so it's funny that you're like people are like oh come on mr mom as batman wacky comedian guy as uh, who does a lot of pratfalls as batman that doesn't work for me keaton made it work just like it sounds like pattinson does yeah that's the thing i think to be batman you can't be too much batman you need to be able to do other things. You need to bring something else to it. You know, there's this kind of, this understated thing that Michael Keaton had while also having this ridiculous flair. He always seems like a guy who's out of his mind who's keeping his cool during this moment, but there's <laughs> something else going on. <laughs> and I think, I mean, we've seen in interviews, you know, Pattinson has that same thing. If he's gets bored, he'll just make up an answer and entertain himself. He's, in, he's an incredibly intelligent guy, I think, which he shares with Michael Keaton, while also still having a flair for for something a bit more theatrical. Um, although I think when he w- puts in the work, he does take it very seriously. William Mullally, our guest, joining us uh, to review uh, the Batman with us and, and preview it for everybody that's going uh, this weekend. This is going to do, I think, massive numbers. I don't know if it does global, you know, Spider-Man, uh, the new Spider-Man movie, the last couple where, where all the Spider-Mans were united. They got Willem Dafoe back as, uh, as the Goblin. Give me some supporting roles. I mentioned that Tom Wilkinson, who just steals every second of every movie he's in and was awesome in Batman Begins. But give me some, uh, who else jumps off the page to you? Is it a John Turturro, a Colin Farrell? There's some massive names in this movie that don't mind being on screen, uh, you know, William, for only eight or nine minutes. Yeah, that's the thing. I think, as I was saying with Pattinson, you cast a bit against type, but not too much. John Turturro is great for that because he's such a likable, you know, warm-hearted guy that we've seen and, you know, pay off so well in movies like Mr. Deeds that when he's pay- playing this, you know, really ruthless gangster, you mm-hmm. still kind of like him. You want to believe in him. And you see that under other side come through. Um, Paul Dano, I think, is basically cast a type here, but <laughs> in playing this sort of you know, ridiculous um, serial killer, um, but very modern, radicalized, like thinks he's a hero type that I think only he could really pull off and make believable, you know, and put to this, this level as he's just tremendous in that. Jeffrey Wright brings, I think, his trademark warmth to, to Gordon playing for type, but in a supporting role that I think needs it. And I think Zoe Kravitz is just tremendous here. As, She's great. Uh, Selena Kyle. As, as I, I think she is a perfect Catwoman. This is one that I don't think anyone questioned <laughs> in the same way that they questioned Batman. She just or, has everything that it takes and she brings such a strength and such a grace. And I, I think also she's just tremendous chemistry 
with patents. And I think the TikTok fan edits are going to be going crazy for, for months to come. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So, look, it's a dark character. There's moments, uh, even in some of the campy Batmans, of of uh, darkness and, and brooding. I'd ask if you could contrast this feel with what Joker was with Joaquin Phoenix. That was heavy. Like, I sat there, watched that with my wife and teenage sons, and we were like... Ooh, like it hits. It hits like like a like a brick to the chest. Is this a little bit lighter than that? I think it excites. Ultimately, I think this is a more hopeful film. I think Dark Knight was very much the sort of post nine eleven, lost in the not understanding what good and evil is, not understanding how evil will come at you. It's this very out of control and a guy who's trying to find some sort of control, trying to find a narrative, trying to find something to believe in, putting that all on Harvey Dent, giving up his entire life to try to just make people believe in something that he knows is not true, which is very much of that era. Whereas I think with The Dark Knight, this is ultimately about a guy who's becoming a more compassionate version of this character that we know. He's finding hope. He's realizing that the hope of the city is not him, but he can help it. And ultimately, in that, finding hope for himself. So while this is a dark film, I do think that there's just such a heart to it that I can't wait to see expand in the next film. Amazing. William, it's great to talk to you uh, uh, about this movie. Um, I'm I'm also hopeful because you gave it a positive review. I saw a couple bad ones earlier in the week, but I'm going on Sunday with my youngest son, and I can't freaking wait. Thank you very much for, uh, for hyping up our audience for it and hyping me up uh, w- with your review. I appreciate you coming on. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Great talking to you. Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. Um, you are uh, seeing Dr. Kieran Moore. I can't wait to get rid of the also the title, uh, Tor- uh, you know, Toronto's Top Doctor, Ontario's Top Doctor. <laughs> there wasn't a competition. It's not a science fair, right? Well, but he is the leader of all the doctors, right? That's why he's up there every Thursday giving his saying what he has to say so we're supposed to turn to him for guidance and for advice the top doctor is a weird title though i don't like i said it's not on their business card top doc yeah, you'll put that I, on your linkedin wonder if he introduces himself to people i'm the top doc yeah as opposed good, to just doctor like it's and a good and, pickup line it's a good pickup it's a line. not a bad yeah if, if if kieran morton needed to pick up that would be a line that he could potentially use. <laughs> he could do that. He could do that. Um, you had uh, your thoughts on some of, we had Dr. Bogosh on yesterday at 835. Did he say anything of interest you wanted to, well, to highlight? You and I are a lot of our hot talk, topics between each other are always we're talking about masks. I mean, six months ago, it was vaccines. Now it's masks. And we go back and forth. Well, you and I have remained steady. Let's get the masks off the kids, right? We want them off in school. We want them to have normal childhoods, normal school lives, um, communication. My five-year-old can't see anything. What's going on with, you know, in terms of reading, writing. And um, Dr. Bogosh, who is I'm a huge fan of. He's a regular on our show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him. Here's what he had to say yesterday. I think like if the question is today, should we lift mask mandates? My personal bias is no. I don't think that we should. I think it's too early. Let's reevaluate this every, you know, week by week by week, and eventually we'll get there. He has spoken, and that that's that surprised me. Did you? Did that surprise you coming from him? Um, yeah, it, it is March fourth. I'd be I'd be really satisfied if uh, if we were there at the end of the month. I, I would I would ha- I would be able to handle uh, the idea of April first. Um, like, how are you hoping elementary? I have a thought on elementary school. How are you hoping elementary school is different? Let's say, let's just even say from April fifteenth on the last Shiba, nine ten weeks of the school. What are you hoping for the last nine ten weeks of the school year? Complete normalcy, pre pandemic levels of school normalcy. Just what they, how they went to school, how things were, how life was before. And this isn't forcing people to take off their masks. It's just, it's optional. 
If you don't want to wear a mask at school, then you have that option, right? And if there are some mm-hmm. people who feel more comfortable, sure, go for it. And there's no shaming. There's no bullying. None of that. We have to normalize whatever your choice is. That's what I want. I hear from so many parents who uh, have kids that have either a speech delay, uh, right, or something like that. And I, I, I couldn't I couldn't have fathomed. Our, our youngest uh, talks like a maniac right now. But when he was two and a half or three, we had him in we had him in like a speech therapy because he would sort of grunt and we knew what he wanted. And, but he was slow to the words. So I can't imagine if if he was at that point in February of 2020, how how the progress would have been different. And they're critical ages like there's ages where the light better go on for some things. Right. Reading writing, math, spell, like like you just, you can't, this isn't like, oh, I'm going to learn how to play golf at a certain age, or I'm going to learn how to water ski. You need these things. It is yes. document. You need these things and have, you got benchmarks you got to hit. And I couldn't have put him in a mask. I couldn't have put him in a mask 35 hours a week at age four and five in that era, knowing what I know about him. And But you would have had no choice. That's the well, problem, I right? It's either for me, keep my five-year-old at home, which I'm never doing that again, hopefully, yeah. uh, or send him to school with the mask on. And there's so many, there are parents who come to me and say, with toddlers, with two and three-year-olds, oh, I would never send my five-year-old to school in a mask. I don't want him at home watching yeah. TV yeah. or, you know, watching me work all day. He needs to be, at least he gets that socializing with socialization with the kids. But I mean, every Thursday, Dr. Moore has his press conference and here's what he had to say about masks. Because the, the trends look so good that we can anticipate uh, uh, if the trends continue, removing uh, mask, mandatory masking uh, by the end of March. So it's coming. It's not as early as you and I had had deemed, but it's. I think it's as the weather gets better, the masks will come off. And I think I think there's teachers, there's principals, kind of galvanizing to say, "I'll keep wearing it or I'll take it off." Like, sure. Again, I, I'm worried about. I am worried about teacher unions. I am worried about pressure. I am worried about sort of scare tactics about some of this stuff. Um, I, I and we have an election. Like everything is just going to feel politically and political in the, in the next three months. Unlike maybe say where we were last year. So Absolutely, absolutely. But you know what? I feel I see the light at the end of the tunnel for my kids. I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be outdoor sports. Uh, there may be the potential. My grade eight, maybe he can have a grad. Maybe he can. Oh, I'd, 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 I'd be in tears. You know I'm a crier. I, I, I weep on a regular basis. <laughs> yes, indeed. Chatterbox on a, a Friday morning here on Toronto Today. Let's welcome in Amira El-Gawabi, human rights advocate in uh in Ottawa, I feel like it's uh, it's too late. It's like saying Happy New Year too late in the year. Is it too late to say how's how's everything in Ottawa? <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Greg. It's, it's yeah, better. <laughs> it is much better. I've I've been in the downtown several times now, and I can tell you, it's almost every time there's a big sigh of relief. Oh my goodness, you know, we're still we're still kind of dealing with the hangover of that convoy. I'll tell you that much. But uh, but no, things are normal. Things you know, we're walking around in the streets. Things are cold, but peaceful thank goodness yes now now only the worst thing about ottawa is winter seems to last an extra five or six (laughs) weeks past there's extra groundhogs there in ottawa i think that determine this jamie ellerton conservative uh strategist joining us uh not it's no it's no picnic in the gta either jamie is it i mean come on like like enough of winter right yeah i actually drove home from ottawa last night and got in shortly after midnight (laughs) uh, back home here to toronto and uh i did a car wash actually to take all the salt off and it was very much freezing when I uh, pulled out of the SO's automatic car wash at one in the morning last night. So uh, very cold here as well. Yeah. Like you said, five weeks less than what Ottawa experienced when it eventually does warm up. May the next car wash you take uh, be uh, just, just to make your car shine in 22 degree sunshine. That's all. <laughs> 
all I can wish for you here. Um, let's uh, let's start with you, Jamie, because th- this is very much your your bread and butter. Uh, Jean Charest uh, is getting discussed a fair bit, and he's obviously having uh, exploratory meetings. He met with forty MPs uh, this past week. Is Jean Charest a viable player for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? Only Pierre Pauly ever four weeks ago uh, with that uh, announcement, and, and people giggled at it. Uh, I'm running for prime minister, but they also paid attention to it. Would would Jean Charest be a viable player for the leadership? Could he be a challenger to Pierre here? Uh, so I guess it depends on what you determine uh, viable to be. Full disclosure: I probably will end up working for a, a different candidate in this race. Uh, but for Jean Charest, like, will he be able to put a campaign team together, raise the money, register, make the fee, and like meet the technical requirements by that standard? Yeah, I think he'll be a viable candidate. Will Jean Charest be able to appeal to conservative membership as it is today and sell enough memberships across the country uh, in a way that resonates? For that, I- I'm really skeptical. I think there's a lot of positions mm-hmm. taken in his past uh, that kind of don't drive to where the conservative party base is today and i think he's got a real uphill battle in uh, convincing anyone kind of west of sault Ste. marie that uh, he can bring this party first and foremost to keep it united together uh and then appeal to a broader set of canadians to ultimately win power it tells you what a, he's only 63 it tells you what a mover and shaker he was uh in the early 90s i was in, in university then when he was battling it out with kim campbell to become the de facto prime minister going into a 93 election in which the conservatives obviously were, were about to get hit really hard uh by jean Chrétien and the liberals but nonetheless amira th- we've spoken before about people feeling politically homeless and this this may speak to it sheree feels like more a a middle ground candidate candidate compared to Mr. Pauly ever. But but that's I mean, there's there's liberals that say, ah, I don't know. I had to I had to hold my nose to vote for Justin Trudeau. There's conservatives that say, I wish I could go one way or the other. Like like there's so much political conflict, it feels like in Canada right now. And as we were just saying in Ottawa, that that documented it for four weeks straight. That's right. I mean, there's so much polarization. And I think that, you know, the vast majority of Canadians you know, just want to hear about the issues. We don't want to see, um, you know, the pandering to, you know, the fringe minority um, that were here in Ottawa just a few weeks ago uh, talking about, you know, issues of freedom, but completely misconstruing what freedom actually means. Freedom is not to do whatever you want, come hell or or high Mm -hmm. water, but it is to sort of look what is the best public policy. And what we always call for um, is a politics that is about the issues, not getting into fanning the flames of division, which there certainly is enough to go around. Um, And I think that, you know, what what any political party is going to need to do is look for candidates, leaders who are able to really speak to the issues, give Canadians what they need to hear, help them make a decision about, you know, the the safety of their own families, their communities and 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 do that by presenting their ideological position. And so Mr. Charest, I mean, he has a very long track record. We're seeing, um, you know, I just read a, a, a signed letter of number of conservative MPs actually calling on Mr. Charest to uh, go for the leadership, uh, citing his track record. So there are those within the party and more broadly who are looking for, you know, politicians who do uh, show their mettle in terms of having the experience um, of actually bringing uh, political solutions to the table that are more focused on on getting the solutions done rather than, again, sort of pandering. And, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that we've unfortunately seen a lot of pandering over the years and people, are, I, I think, are sick of it. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't doubt that in the least. People just want to feel. Let's talk about. Let, let, let's feel free to, to, you know, to speak and and say what the biggest issues are in our household. But let's also look look more broadly. And Amira makes a really good point about the polarization, uh, Jamie. And you know, we could look at John Charest and say, well, he needs to he needs to break through that red wall here in the GTA. Some might feel Polly Evers is better suited for that, but someone has to do it. The belief was an Ontario MPP like Aaron or MP rather like Aaron O'Toole was going to be able to do it. But they also need votes in Quebec. I should point that out as well. The bloc's got a lot more of a stranglehold than, say, when back in Stephen Harper's last election. They've they've really built out. And Mr. Blanchet has has become a popular force, uh, especially during this pandemic, uh, pushing back against even some provincial restrictions that uh, uh, France, um, the Premier Legault is put in yeah like undoubtedly he uh, is a force i think even if you look at how fractured the quebec electorate is uh, and how political parties pop up and seem to come and go uh, and some of them form government like what lugo did uh, under the caq the coalition Navier de quebec uh, the conservative party in quebec now uh, a relatively new phenomenon led by eric Duhem. Uh, is now about polling in the double digits and continuing to gain traction. Uh, so I think fundamentally, Greg, right now, I think people are generally kind of fed up with the status quo. Uh, they know something's got to give. All they're getting is politics as usual. And I think the electorate's up for grabs. So when you come back to someone like Jean Charest, who's been around for a long time, who has a lot of political baggage, uh, is known to some as kind of a name, but uh, most people probably have no idea who he is outside of Quebec in terms of like what he actually stands for, who he actually is. Because mm-hmm. essentially, if you, uh, John Sherry left federal politics in uh, 1998, so pretty much anyone under the age of 45 has no direct experience with this guy uh, for what he represents mm-hmm. and what he stands for. And this is not going to be about appealing the country as a whole is that this is a general election. This is at the end of the day right now, a conservative party of Canada leadership race. And it's one membership, one Mm -hmm. vote. The style of politics that Jean Charest had to practice uh, at delegated conventions to get your (laughs) 10 to 15 people at each riding to a convention and the drama you used to see unfold on the convention floor is not how this works in the conservative party of Canada. It is one member, one vote. And anyone who's worked in the conservative party will tell you even MPs when they endorse uh, a leadership candidate, it doesn't mean that MP is actually carrying their riding. Uh, and maybe they do. Sometimes it's only 60-40, and those points add up as you go across the country. So Jean Charest doesn't just have to appeal to people who are very much entrenched in uh, the Ottawa scene and what goes on on Parliament Hill and the very leadership aspect. He's got to tell his grassroots memberships, 338 ridings across the country, and convince them he's the man to lead the Conservative Party going forward. And I think uh, he's got a real uphill battle to make that case. Jamie Ellerton, uh, that's the voice of uh, right now conservative strategist Amira El-Gawabi with us as well. Amira, I think we're all really engaged and activated with Canadian politics. I mean, we've had two elections in the last two and a half years federally. We've got a provincial one coming up, so we're all quite aware. Part of that, I think, is, this is my theory, that it's just quieter in the United States, that the four years of Donald Trump was loud. It was obnoxious. It was brash. It was in our face. We we were distracted by it even in Canada, and I'm very... American centric with politics, having lived there, having having taken a lot of courses in, in, in my degree for it. But I'm curious how it lands for you with with Joe Biden right now. He had some good moments at the State of the Union. It's really easy to bang the lectern, talk tough about Ukraine, talk tough about Russia. 
but I don't know that we think he's going to run again. And it felt like the, all the Democratic candidates, even the ones that had really innovative new ideas, even the older candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had new ideas. But it felt like the Democrats thought there's only one person that can beat Donald Trump, and it was Joe Biden. So they all ceded to him. So do you see a, a wide open field um, to go against Trump? Or do we think Joe Biden's got one more election in him? And, and where does Kamala Harris play a role? There's so many questions about the state of the Democratic Party right now. And they're in the White House. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that uh, we, we all needed a bit of a reprieve from what was going on in the United States for so long. And, you know, we never really got that reprieve because things got kind of heated over here. So, uh, <laughs> so thinking about the United States kind of, you know, it's a little bit of whiplash. Um, but, you know, before I get into Kamala Harris, I just want to say that um, it was quite remarkable that for the first time in American history, you had um, two women sitting behind uh, the president in an official State of the Union address. So you had Vice President Kamala Harris and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. behind the president on the day. So, I mean, I think that's remarkable. I think that's really important to note. Um, and But I think what's, you know, unfortunate, um, you know, thinking about gender and how that plays into this, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris, her popularity, um, you know, is below uh, President Biden's popularity right now. We know as a woman, she is getting a lot of attacks, misogynistic, online hate, that sort of thing. So, you know, it's not easy at all to be a woman in politics still to this day in the United States or anywhere, anywhere really, even here in Canada. Um, and so, you know, what what kind of hope does she have in terms of following Biden? Um, it's anyone's guess. I'm sure she has her eye on that job. Uh, but with her approval ratings declining um, and there are these unfa- unfavorable opinions, people are saying that, you know, she hasn't been handling one of her chief assignments, which has been addressing, uh, you know, a very thorny issue in the United States, which is immigrants coming yeah. trying to cross into the United States and of course Republicans really making her uh, you know the face of this issue um, and that would make it um, you know harm, uh, hard for her to uh, to win more uh, support so you know she's got she's got to watch these very tricky um, issues she has the the uh, the way that she's being targeted um, as being a, a female uh, black woman a South Asian American serving as you know nation's second in command she's got these different issues um, you know dogging her and of course Biden himself his popularity is going down and so uh, you know it, it's a challenging time um, how they are going to hold up against uh, you know any type of return of uh, the Trump camp uh, you know it's uh, it's kind of scary to to think about at this point jamie it's it's and this but this is where we're at with politics and maybe we have always been there but it's just amplified there's would this be would this person do a good job vis-a-vis can they get elected and that's a big distinction right there and that's sometimes i think democrats worry too much about that uh and and they're kind of torn they obviously have a lot of different factions in their own political party right now um alexandra ocasio-cortez didn't love a lot of joe biden's state of the union address and said so almost immediately afterwards so you're not you're not presenting really that much of a united front and i think the republicans look and say they're kind of split on on who they are and what they want to be all told and that's something we we think we can exploit here yeah, and it's also keep in mind as well, especially in the U.S. political cycle, it tends to go back and forth, and uh, incumbent presidents tend to lose the con- Congress uh, control of whole Congress mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to midterm elections, because there's always going to be uh, kind of a gulf between expectations of what you hope the government would accomplish when they come to office uh, and how fast uh, they deliver or their in- inability, ultimately. Uh, to deliver, and the democratic coalition as it exists in the U.S. is is a very diverse uh, range of activists across 
it's spectrum and issues of how you cobble that together. Uh, and I think, indeed, if you look at what brought Joe Biden to office, like, don't forget how fractured the, I would say, that even that primary season was that put Joe Biden into being the Democratic nominee. Uh, and it kind of all came together quick at the last minute, as the party seemed to say, you know what, I'm going to bite my tongue. I might not love Joe the best, but, like, we need someone who can reach Trump to essentially stop what we see. For the past well, he, he looked in big trouble. after He looked in huge trouble after Iowa and New Hampshire, didn't he? he was, his campaign looked dead in the water, and then just the, the Red Sea parted, it seemed like. Exactly. I think it was after you saw how fractured the, the field was, uh, people started to look and say, okay, hey, it's not in our interest mm-hmm. to essentially fight this all the way to the convention floor uh, in August at the Democratic National Convention. And you saw the, essentially the negotiations and the deals made for people to come in line behind a leader who they thought could actually defeat Donald Trump and give him uh, the resources and runway to do just that. But so as that plays out in terms of midterms uh, and what that means for U.S. seats and, and the like, I think Republicans are definitely more motivated to come out and kind of come back. But uh, I don't think there's also an appetite for anything uh, Donald Trump asks. So sure, he holds a significant force within the, the GOP. But if it comes to anything like uh, putting him back in power and what that means, I think you're going to see a lot of resistance from the electorate at large. Yeah, I actually, and and I don't th- I think what's happening right now, uh, Amir, I got about 45 seconds to finish on. I think given we probably do not have a short um, conclusion to this, this war and this military invasion and this military conflict, Ah, uh, you know, even if even if you lean with some conservative principles, Donald Trump might not be the person you want in the White House while this is going on at the given time, right? J- Jamie can't help but laugh, but it's true. I mean, it feels a little bit like you know the world is on fire, yeah. and uh, and you know, and it just doesn't just doesn't seem to be going away. Of course, you know, we're all just heartbroken of what's happening in Ukraine, and you do want adults in the room trying to figure this out. So, would Donald Trump uh, be that right person? I, I know I don't think. So. <laughs> And I think probably most of your listeners don't think so. Um, so, you know, what that means for the U.S.'s future right now, uh, I mean, still, it's, it's, still, yeah. it's still a bit early to, to be contemplating uh, a Trump return to office. Given we all we all said the sentence and started giggling uh, halfway through it, we were three for three on that. I think it's, uh, it's yeah, that that, unanimous, that that said it all. That kind of said it all. Amira, Jamie, thank you very much for uh, for this. It was great this morning. Uh, and have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thank you both. Jamie Ellerton, Amira Al-Gawabi on Chatterbox. Thanks very much for listening to Toronto Today. Glad you found us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you've been listening to us. Feel free to subscribe. We get downloaded right to your phone, right to your laptop, wherever you partake, so to speak. We can be there. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday morning between 530 and 9, live show right here on 640 Toronto.